Hello, everyone. This is an introduction to the episode. Khalid and I are joined by Lieutenant Matthew Waddell, and we would like everyone to know that the next statements are not a reflection of the Department of Defense, Homeland Security, the United States, United States military, or any departmental entity under which all opinions are of the host and guest as individuals and not a reflection of any nation, nation state, of any group on the planet Earth, except for the individuals. Would you like to add to that? Now, hey, Mr. Miller, you hit it right on the head there. Everything that I'm about to say, everything y'all are about to say are our own personal opinions, nothing more, nothing less. So take it with a grain of salt. Mm -hmm. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to In Defense of Humanity. My name is Ostris Oz Miller. Khalid Johnson, my co-host, is here, of course, and today we are joined by Second Lieutenant Matthew Waddell. Matt, please introduce yourself. Hey, everybody. Uh, like Mr. Miller said, I'm Matthew Waddell. I uh, just commissioned recently as the Second Lieutenant to the United States Army Transportation Corps, currently training at Fort Lee, Virginia, um, before I go to Fort Hood for my first duty station. Excellent. Excellent. And we've brought you on today. I know you personally, well, in a professional setting as well, uh, because we worked at a, uh, a summer camp that shall not be mentioned because uh, <laughs> we, we just don't mention uh, most companies on this show uh, so that they can have plausible deniability in case we say something that they don't like. But we did work at a summer camp together for, I guess, a summer. And that was pretty nice. We kept in contact while you were in ROTC, while I was in Normie College. And we, we've talked about a few things. Uh, today, we're going to dive into the military industrial complex, which I think would be good because Khalid and I have talked about it a little bit, but it'd be nice if we have someone who joins us who was or who is currently moving through training and moving up through the commissioned officer ranks, as we've talked to people who are current and previously enlisted, but we have not yet talked to an officer. So let's just dive in. Khalid, do you have anything that you would like uh, Matt to analyze before we even jump into what the military industrial complex is? No, not per se. I guess it probably would be more efficient just to start with uh, a working definition of the military industrial complex and then you know going from there yeah of course so the military industrial complex which has been described by several people over the course of well over a century uh, we're reaching a century is simply and you know it's it expanded through nato which we have as well the north atlantic treaty organization i believe it's just Whenever a country invests its time and effort into creating systems that support the military and that military creating systems in which the country can have a prosperous economy, which feeds back into the military. It's a feedback loop, but in practice, 
it works quite well as long as it's not analyzed deeply uh, because then we'll see people are like oh it works because we have a large military thus it's clearly working and then we look at spending then we look at bureaucracy uh, which is inherent in all government facilities across the world uh, and then we look at where the spending's going how it's being allocated and then we start to dive in a little bit deeper and then it's like hold up this might not be as efficient as we've been led to believe um, speaking of efficiency and bureaucracy matt i'm sure you have some things to say about this yeah, there is a common saying in the military that, um, or at least in the army, that nothing moves fast in the army, uh, which is both true and not true, depending on the circumstance. Mm. There is a lot of red tape, as with any government affiliated or solely government organization. Um, and sometimes that is what I would describe as a necessary evil. So mm -hmm. while it makes it more difficult sometimes to be as efficient um, as you could possibly be, it also does, in some instances, well or not, it can prevent um, a lot of what's, what's the word I'm looking for. Um, prevents pe some people who may have malicious intent with what they're trying to do, keeps them from being able to accomplish that. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, like I said, kind of a necessary evil. Nothing anyone really likes, but it sometimes compared to what the alternative could be, it is better than that. Absolutely. And so in turn, I look whenever I think personally of the complex. It is self-fulfilling because you need the, or rather the complex itself, not necessarily that the nation needs such a large military, but in order to keep the complex going, you do have to justify its existence, or rather, in our case, as America, uh, we have to pretend as though the complex doesn't exist in mainstream media and to perpetuate it through the military. And I'll explain exactly what I'm saying. So we have a large military. In order to justify its existence, we have to have a reason to have a large military and have so much spending. Thus, we engage in activities, both military, humanitarian, and otherwise, to give credence to its, its own existence and to say that the spending is necessary, whether it's development of new technology and demobilization of bodies or uh, returning to older styles of uh, military training in, in favor in order to increase the bodies. But in the end of it, and I don't know how you feel about this, Matt, but I will say the military in and of itself, our current model is quite, for people who are in it, socialist as we have uh the universalized health care yes uh the thrift savings plans the well basically all internalized care for military members yet i've seen a lot of people outside of the military use the military to justify uh a socialist activities like completely disregarding other human beings when the internal uh, systems of the military are in it of themselves, uh, heavily government regulated to guarantee the equity amongst the ranks. Like if you have the same job and the same rank, you are getting paid in, in the same deployment. You're getting paid the same exact amount as anyone else, regardless of race, gender, 
um, creed, uh, what have you. Um, how, how do you feel about whenever I say, right, because you are currently in, if I were to say, ah, the military in and of itself to the people who are involved is a bit closer to socialism than it is capitalism, right? I would say that the military is probably the closest that I ever want to get uh, personally to socialism, for sure. Um, when I think about, I understand why that they give us uh, you know, our free healthcare, in some cases, depending on your rank and where you are, you'll get free food, things like that. I understand the reason behind that, um, even if it isn't really, quote unquote, inherently capitalist. Um, and that's because the last thing that our country needs or really that we would want either is for its war fighters at any capacity, at any level, to be unable to perform their duties for whatever reason, especially for something as simple as not being able to get adequate medical care or not being able to get adequate food and water. Um, mm. Living in a very industrialized, you know, first world country, um, especially, there is no excuse for that. Mm. When I think about, say, the when you were mentioning a moment ago how regardless of where you are, if you're on deployment or working stateside, you if you have the certain rank, you get paid a certain amount, period. Mm -hmm. I like that whenever it goes to the sense of you get paid the same amount regardless of race, gender, of preference, creed, anything like that. I believe that that mm -hmm. is one of the things that America really shines itself on, but also fails to do far too often. I mm. think that your ability to do a job is not determined by what race you are, uh, what ethnicity you are, what gender you are, but how you personally do the job, period. What I don't like about that is that someone can sit in the back of a deployment or anything and mm do as little as they possibly can. The, not, not even the bare minimum sometimes, sometimes even lower than that. Mm. And they get the same, paid the same amount as someone who on the other end of the spectrum is not just doing the minimum, not just doing the standard, but exceeding the standard. Mm -hmm. Maybe because mm -hmm. they want you know, their own personal marriage because they want to be looked at for promotion or something like that. Yeah. But also because they legitimately enjoy what they do. They believe in the cause that they're either fighting or working towards. Um, mm -hmm. that's really the kind of part that I don't like about it mm -hmm. is that there is equality to the point to where it doesn't matter whether you I do think well or not. The, um, if that makes sense. Yes. So like one of the mm -hmm. capitalist things, right, is you work hard so you don't have to work later, right? You know, you, 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 you work your ass off and, you know, if you work hard enough, when you get to the top, you're not working, you know, you're just dictating other people that they have to work, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so like, mm -hmm. well, I, I hear I hear that point. I hear that point very often in many other parts of, you know, the workforce in general, right? You know, I don't like the fact that I have to work my ass off and somebody else isn't pulling their slack, pulling their weight, right? Um, I think it's like, like you could also apply this to um, a lot of thoughts on welfare, right? You know, I go to I go to work and I do whatever, and these people on welfare, uh, you know, some people exploit it. Um, 
I think the issue is capitalism has reinforced this idea that we always have to be worried about what the other person is doing, right? Now, I believe that ideally within whatever system, socialist, communist, what have you, that, you know, we're all working, you know, we're all working, we're all parts of the same machine, we're all working towards the same goal, you know, which is our community structure to work, our job structure to work, all of that. At the same time, you know, we also have to knowledge that there are people getting paid to do less, you know, just to give orders, right? They're getting paid more than the grunts, more than the people at the lower rungs of the military, right? And so if you kind of notice this, uh, not really sure that's enforcing work harder because, you know, you look at people above you and they're not really working anywhere near as hard as you are. But the justification is mm. they did it before you did. But can't prove that. For me, how I look at that is, yeah, they may not physically do as much, quote unquote, especially within the military. Uh, this is mainly what I'm talking about here. But the responsibility they bear now because they're advanced position, now um, it doesn't matter if they do do something themselves or not. Sometimes if someone else underneath them fails, then the mm -hmm. blame is on them. So I think part of that goes into, um, you know, why it's people that do work hard and do eventually get to those higher positions, um, why there should be some benefits that come along with that. Because if you're going to accept all this uh, extra responsibility that other people in the company don't have to have or just simply don't have, and you've worked already and put in the effort and the time uh, to be recognized for what you've done and be advanced in your position, I think you know you should have some just reward for it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I, I I certainly hear you on the the merit based uh, promotions, right? The military is probably the only existing meritocracy on paper, I will say, because as you know, if if your uncle's a general or your granddaddy's a general, then you're not just going to have to worry about going to ROTC. You're going to West Point, and you can rest assured you'll at least reach O nine before you retire, somehow. Even even if you do a piss poor job at what you do, you're, you're going to make it. So I'll say on paper, certainly meritorious. But I think of like Mustangs who started off enlisted from high school, you know, fortunately for them, didn't buy a Corvette, a Mustang or a Camaro. Good, good on them. Made it through, decided to go Mustang, uh, commissioned or warrant officer, and then uh, make it up there they're fighting tooth and limb to get up there if they weren't infantry then then well if they weren't infantry people are going to assume that they have to be the best of the best to get to that point if they were infantry and they're smart people are going to continually question why they went infantry like regardless of what they do if you start off in a place where you have to work your way up sure your merits can pay off but if someone just doesn't like you then they could make it as hard as possible to get uh, anywhere close to where someone who just has a relative or has a friend who's already there. Yeah, and I hate that that is the case, that you can possibly ride in on, you know, for lack of better terms, on someone else's coattails um, into a position to where you're really not qualified or you're underqualified compared to the people that were also buying for that position. Um, and I wish there was a really good way that we could go about to keep that from happening. Mm. Um, but you know, as well as I do, you know, if you're a buddy buddy with someone, they're gonna probably help you out before they help out oh, someone yeah. they don't know. 
even if you know yeah, yeah. you may or not may not be qualified more qualified excuse me than the other person mm-hmm. but you have that personal relationship with the other person that other person has a personal investment in you that could possibly, absolutely um help them even to an extent if you make it into that position yeah um and you know it kind of goes back to the old mantra um that i learned a lot growing up um is that life just sometimes just isn't fair um wish it wasn't always that way but there's just some things that are out of our control we can only control other people or outside circumstances to a certain degree and what we can control is our reaction to it so if i if i'm sitting in a position and i'm as qualified or more qualified than someone else another person gets gets a command before i do um how do i how do i react that do i you know kind of stick out an upper lip or stick up my lower lip excuse me and then you know get all pissy about it and say oh you know i should have got that position i can't believe that old you know sack of crap got that position over me i've done 10 times as much work as they have now, do i do that or do i say okay so maybe um, the playing field right now for me isn't as equal as it should be how do i get around this um and the, the thing that I've seen work the most consistently, in my experiences at least, could be different for anyone else in the military, but in my experiences is that, okay, you're already outperforming that other person, outperform them more, overqualify them, outqualify them, become the person that is so good at your job um, through merit of your own, more than anything, through your own merit and expertise become the person that they just simply cannot turn you away because they know that even if they give it to someone else, um, that everyone else will know why. Be, be the better person and you'll eventually get what you need. I hate saying this. I hate saying, I hear you, but I really don't like saying that. But, uh, you know, I might be taking away some of Khalid's points as well. I see, I see him. He's teeing on his toes. He looks like he's ready to go in. Um, but I, I always take this from from a perspective. Like I was listening to the Air Force Officer podcast, and they were saying, you know, it it looks good. Like I said, on paper, this meritocracy. You you can put in all the work. You can make top ranks at the captain's course even whenever you starting off were the slowest person, the weakest person in the class, somehow two, three years later, you get to the captain's course and now you're number one. You're, you're ranked out of the, out of everything. You're beating infantry officers. You wouldn't be in the captain's course. Nonetheless, people who are listening don't really care where you would be in the captain's course. But let's say you, you get out there and you're there and it's, it's between you and let's say, a woman of uh, Latin American descent, a Latinx woman. Both of you qualify and both of you are up for the position now. Now it's up to the person who chooses the where you're going to be put, assigned, billet, uh, position, wherever, which brigade. So that's up to their decision, which isn't always fair, as you've noted. But it's like, at least on paper, you guys are equally as qualified. Um, so wherever they place you, that's up to them. So they might be discriminatory and the system that allowed them to get there is not broken. It is the, the people 
who are in the system who decide who gets to be in the position are completely biased and because they're the people here here's where we go with the complex they're the people who make it up to general who then use nepotism to assign people who think like them their friends to get up just like whenever i pick my roommate not based on the fact that they're a good roommate but based on the fact that they're my friend and it turns out they're an asshole you know uh they just keep taking up keep assigning people oh this was a bad decision well i'm retiring now so it's none of my business but the person who you left there is unqualified and then of course they're going to assign more unqualified people who they like thus leading you to this after this captain's course about to be assigned to your brigade and now you have you and this other person equally qualified guess what neither one of you gets it because they they selected somebody who's the son of their friend who's already retired because they were like don't worry i'll look out for him and then neither one of you gets it not only is it unfair which is which is irrelevant to the situation of course but it it works against the system that it's trying to perpetuate it it goes against this the speak of meritocracy that you were even talking about because you can't even say that you put in the best work you did everything because the avatars the people who show the system as what it is the people who are on the commercials may not even be the people who should be at the in the limelight because they were simply selected for shits and giggles they were they were just selected because somebody wanted to select them over another person uh, they like their accent over the other person and that's why they got selected that's probably not the reason why anyone has been selected or i surely hope not but there's a possibility for something like this and beyond this beyond this this talk of equality and selection boards and equity uh so that we can drop khalee johnson in here we're going to jump all the way back to the the world as it is right without meritocracy and in this capitalist experiment we call north america canada and the united states and we say how can we apply these systems outside and we will talk about that right after this welcome back from the break that was that was good so before we left off we said we were going to or rather i said i was going to talk a bit about the systems that allowed us to have a more equitable uniform service because this includes the public health services NOAA as well who are not armed forces as well as department of homeland security which includes the coast guard which a lot of people in the military laugh at the coast guard as though they don't for for the amount of people they have they have some pretty good equipment because even though they don't have the massive budget as the others whenever you have like less people then the budget goes far so they have some nice aircraft old but well serviced so systems that allow they talked about this on the air force officer podcast we are not affiliated with the air force officer podcast the department of defense the department of homeland security or any other government entity please don't come for us that being said they said and i like this 
they were they were talking about people who say why do we always talk about race and gender um being transgender uh non-binary in the military it shouldn't matter you're serving your country yet a lot of the people who say these things are in fact the same people who you can find on social media uh saying i don't care about any of this back in my day it wasn't like this and it's like no back in your day these individuals right in the you'd had separate black uh integration didn't happen until the 20th century in the military it may have been before standard integration in the world but could you imagine fighting in uh, a foreign war killing foreign brown people for a country that that makes brown people walk on the other side of the street and people were like oh it it was different it was the military and it's like okay so i come home and then i have to use a separate water fountain that's insane i gotta die for people who won't even let me use the same toilet and then of course we we started doing integration in the military people want to act like it was sunny like pushing daisies rosies everywhere like people were getting mad right people were there people were attacking military officers national guard officers who were black like enlisted people were physically assaulting people who superseded them in rank because they thought they had a right because of their skin color which is insane to me and people are like nah 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 i love how people just deny history like like it's insane to me um but I say to you, uh, or I ask you, Matt Waddell, whenever you hear people who want to use a nostalgic lens for the way things used to be, this reactionary attitude, let's make things the way they were. I don't want to. I don't want to use that quote. You, you know. You know. You know the slogan. Uh, let's let's go back to this time, whenever we were fine, whenever everybody didn't write their pronouns, what what not. When you hear people like this use the military to justify their thoughts, how does that make you, what do you think about that? Well, generally, when someone says something, you know, to that effect, um, my first kind of thought was, okay, yeah, that was the way it was, but were we better off for it? Or are we better off now because of how things have changed? Um, kind of to hit a little bit on what I mentioned earlier, um, I know with a lot of people, both within the military and mostly from without, actually, uh, from my experiences, um, we're very upset whenever uh, people who were not just openly transgender, um, but openly homosexual were be allowed as, to enlist within the military. Some people like to the extent that they threatened to be hostile about it. They were never actually going to follow through with it, of course, you know, it was kind of cowards at the end of the day, but that's a separate, that's a separate podcast. Um, but like kind of like what I hit, kind of hit on earlier, um, do those things, do those identities that you have, do they affect how you can do your job in the military or even out of the military? No, not in the slightest. Then why does it matter as far as um, a way to bar someone from enlisting? I haven't really myself spoken with a lot of people who were in the military 
before it was segregated because you know that was quite a while ago. And those that I have talked to about it, we never really kind of brought up the subject. Um, in my own personal studies, though, might read um, a book about one of the wars you know, or an army or something like that. Every, every once in a while, they might mention um, kind of race relations. And I really like the uh, point you brought there a moment ago, Mr. Miller, where you're talking about uh, people that said, oh, I have to go die for people who would not even let me use the same restroom, the same water fountain as them. Um, it kind of brought me back to think about a book that I did read called The Last of the Doughboys. Um, it's actually a really good read. would highly recommend it if you're ever bored and need something new to read. Um, there's a chapter within that book where he talks about uh, race relations in particular um, between black colored troops and the specific colored units that they had at the time um, before you know integration happened in the military and the separate white units. And then how the French, whenever they were over there in France, um, the French, French, excuse me, uh, tended to treat African American troops significantly better than the other American troops, the white troops. Um, and how uh, the author talks about how, especially toward the war's end, um, when everyone was getting ready to go back, and many of the uh, African American troops realized uh, what the kind of the war they're about to go back into. There were some disagreements that were documented um, among the military historians and advisors at the time. So some people may long for the glory days or whatever when they were in the prime of their life and they thought, you know, at least from where they were sitting with the, uh, the privileges or just the viewpoints that they had, that things were great, golden, wonderful, but were they really? For you particularly, maybe, but for everyone that was in that command or in that army at the time, Maybe not the same. Absolutely. And that's, that's just the, I think that hits it, hits the nail on the head, as they say, because a lot of people do use nostalgia, the culture industry to look back and be like, I remember back whenever I was, you know, 1967, I was there. That was glorious. And it's like, was it glorious seeing your friend shelled? I can guarantee if we had a way to travel back in time and we asked you, once you came back, you would not say that it was glorious at all. It's your, your mind allows you to filter. You can filter trauma in ways that help you cope with the reality in which you've reentered. But I can almost guarantee with few exceptions that people would talk about glorious fighting killing of people who are defending their homelands especially in the vietnam war uh just people they they may have been seen evil because they were using guerrilla warfare but people act like the the individuals who are parts of militias now if foreign military enter like the cascade mountains and they were shooting in people's houses that they wouldn't use similar tactics as the Viet Cong. It's just insane to think that people wouldn't fight, but what, were they just going to lay down arms and hope that they were stopped dropping napalm in their forests? Is it, is it, I just can't. I, I Sometimes I can't have discussions with individuals who glorify uh, what what has happened. I'd say even beyond like seeing through a filter, right? It's not just that. We're, we are fed this propaganda, right? 
how many how many films can you count that like glamorize the military right you know they're like they're like superheroes or some shit right they're like they're out here and you know everything they do is just so cool and there's so much propaganda and this has always been the case right and so everybody's able to talk about our military with this very um very idyllic view right you know we 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 see them in this particular kind of light um to the point where you know no criticisms even allowed right so like if you wanted to bring up i don't know an overblood an overbloated military spending budget right however however x amount of billions of dollars go into the military when we can't even have universal health care um or you know you criticize uh the the war crimes that are committed or the you know dehumanization of brown people in you know these foreign countries right you can't even criticize that because it's seen as un-american mm. and i think the most patriotic thing you know is to see what's wrong about your country and want to make it better mm. um, there's a quote and i i'm sure i probably quoted it one time on this podcast um, my country right or wrong, if right to be kept right, if wrong to be made right. Mm -hmm. and Absolutely. And I even think about the media because we've talked about media a lot on the podcast and we see out of the television shows, what is it? Something like 31% of television shows are executive branch, uh, police procedurals, but of that 31%, something like 80 high 80s maybe even low 90 percent are of special units so not actual police work like not the police that people would actually encounter to glorify the police so you have detectives or a very small suborder of police who maybe once had to be beat cops because in the police you start at the lowest rank and work your way up and you have special victims unit you have the fbi x-files Agent Mulder and Skelly, you have all these special attachments to the police. And then you have few and far between are of the police procedurals are like actual low level police work. I think of one like Brooklyn nine, nine, which tries to be apolitical with, with quotes because it's comedy. So anytime it shows like the violations the police do, like accidentally breaking into the wrong house, it's all fun and games. Nobody dies. And anytime they do good work, it's all fun and games. Nobody dies. But on these other shows with the special units, you see them like an S uh, special victims unit. You see them coming after normal police as a way to say, oh, maybe sometimes police are bad, but these special detectives are good. They're not just normal police officers. They don't even wear the uniform. They're good. And I see this all the time. And whenever we have shows that are about the military, it's like, unfortunately, my grandmother was watching the show Army Wives, I believe it was called something, something or other, where it's, it's just them back home. And then Netflix had a show called Valor, which tried to actually show what it was like to be at war. And of course it was unpopular by a majority of people because that's not why people watch. People watch this so that they don't, they can see people be glorified. Ah, oh, warrant officers flying in war and then airplane crashes and now they're taken hostage. And now Netflix had good writers who wrote the people who took them hostage, not as 
they didn't just call them terrorists or freedom fighters. The people have lives, have families. Why are you doing this? Why are you? Why do you hate us? We don't hate you. At first, I hated the fact that you indiscriminately blew up my family. So now, in order to prove a point, I have taken you. And yes, I know I'm going to die because your country has unlimited resources in order to retrieve you or to kill me. However, I'm going to make a point before I die. And of course, whenever a show about the military does this, then people don't like it because they're like, that's not cool. Why would you do that? Why would you make the Americans look bad? It's like because they're individuals who who go to these places. Like, mm, mm, here, here's where here's where I might never get security clearance. Whenever a president pardons someone who is on video, who is meant to be a senior NCO, and he allows and himself kills civilians violating the Geneva Convention and the Uniform Code of Military Justice by giving orders to kill civilians. And then the president pardons him and calls him a hero. That That is whenever I draw a heavy line and push it back 200 yards. But that that's just me. It's not just me. It's a lot of people, but a lot of people refuse to talk about it or would prefer to glorify people. Just because you're willing to die for your country doesn't mean that's the reason you're you're going there. I can die to save someone's life. That doesn't mean the reason why I died saving someone's life was to be an honorable and selfless person. I could have died for, I could have assumed, hey, I'm not going to die. I'm going to get the glory or hey, I'm going to get paid and I'm not going to be the one who dies. There are so many reasons why people would go to a foreign nation except other other than to be loyal to the state and to not be a martyr. Khalid or Matt, go, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say this idea of, you know, fighting for the country. Um, you know, I think about World War II. And, you know, that was in, I, I would say that, you know, fighting against Nazis was within, you know, best interests. But, you know, a lot of times it's this like imperialist idea, you know, when you think about um, the war in Iraq and, you know, how that was framed as a war on terror, a war to get WMDs that were proven to have never existed over there, right? It's like you're fighting for U.S. interests as opposed to like the country itself, um, you know, not to like take away from people signing up, though I would say that, you know, especially when recruiters come to like high schools, it's a smidge predatory or a lot predatory. Um, but, you know, more often than not, it's fighting to preserve capitalism. You know, how many wars, like how many wars were we engaged in where we were fighting you know, to make sure that capitalism prevailed. We have led coups in other nations to make sure that capitalism um, prevails or that these non-capitalist systems fail, right? When we fought Vietnam, when we fought um, Korea, this was because we did not like communist states. And so, you know, that imperialist interventionist kind of philosophy put many lives at risk to preserve U.S. interest, and that interest is capitalism, you know? Absolutely. 100%. I do. I 
a history professor um, during undergrad, he he said something interesting. There's a course called Modern Middle East. And it's like all wars have the subtext of being wars for resource, regardless of what the entity or the legitimized government who sends you, whether it be a pope uh, for the Crusades, whether it being a caliphate amongst many sending you for something, all wars are for resources. People will say, ah, Islamists, which is not even a thing, but whenever people say things like that, Islamists don't fight for resources. They already have the oil. And it's like, okay, if I live in Alaska, I'm not fighting for snow if I already have it. Why, why would I fight for something that I have? Of course, that's not the reason. That's the reason why you came there. If you were coming from a very hot place, you might be coming for the snow to turn it into water. I don't know. But the reason why they're fighting is to defend the place, not to defend the resource. And whenever they become reactionary, this is where I don't like Ben Shapiro because he muddles words uh, for his listeners so that they can't actually comprehend what he's saying. But whenever he says Muslim radicals want people to believe what they want and they're willing to kill for it, this is not radical because they're trying to go back the same thing that a lot of Americans are doing, want us to go back to a point at which we believe in religion. That's not radical because radical is a extreme progressive. That's reactionary. They are the same people as white supremacists for different reasons. They're not radical. And I hate when people call um, the people who we call terrorists are predominantly reactionary because I don't see that many religious radicals. That's just not a thing. They're using modern weapons because that is the only means to defeat a superpower. You can't use scimitars and arrows to take down a, a howitzer, right? You can't do anything against a tomahawk if you have a knife. Like nothing, nothing's going to happen at that point, right? So I, that's, that's one big thing is that people overuse the term radical to refer to reactionaries because I, I feel at the root of it, they understand that the term reactionary is associated with uh, Christian nationalists, as Khalid has pointed out, um, because they, they don't want to accidentally conflate the two so that people will start thinking more critically and, oh, wait, they're saying they dislike them. And this is the reason the people who are at least publicly saying that they are Muslim, right? Because we know not all Muslims, uh, not most Muslims, as Ben Shapiro would say, not even true, are doing the same thing for the same reasons. It's almost as if you just switch up the language and the Savior that they are the same exact text written in different scripts. They can't handle that. They can't, they can't do it. I, I know you've, you've encountered people in, uh, in the Carolinas, Matt, in Texas, on the Appalachian Trail, to where if you tell them that they're doing something similar to a person that they hate, that they are willing to, uh, to shoot you. You'd be absolutely correct on that assessment. Oh, yeah. But um, that's, that's it. I mean, how do you how do you justify your hatred 
whether it was, um, well, you're not really born hating people, it's taught to you, it's ingrained in you. Let me back up on that. How, how do you justify that hatred or that dislike for the other, quote unquote, whoever, whatever that may be, um, by demonizing, um, by making it morally, ethically, politically, whatever, making it just wrong to you? Um, because if you can't, to do other si otherwise, excuse me, would be to think of that other person, that other side as human beings. And at that point, how can you, how can I, you know, put myself in a place where I can hate another human being over something as trivial as, you know, politics, like we mentioned earlier? You can't, you have to demonize it, you have to weaponize it. And that's a danger for any country, for any group of people, for any political, religious stance, for any organization of any kind. Absolutely. Khalid, did you have something to say? I was just um, thinking about, you know, I'd say it's like, you know, we thought we talk about, you know, things that are un-American. It's become so American to hate the other, right? To demonize the other, you know, thinking about 9-11 and what came of that, right? This whole movement of hating um, Islamic people, um, hating anybody that wore hijabs um, and, you know, this demonization of a culture because of misunderstandings. I remember when Obama was running against McCain and this woman at one of McCain's rallies was like, I don't trust him because he's a Muslim, right? And so, you know, just consistently demonizing this, this group of people. And that's been common throughout American history, right? You look at, you know, even if I say that World War II, we had more justification to be involved in that war. Um, the propaganda coming out of there was very racist. Um, you know, the propaganda against Japanese people, um, the propaganda against um, Koreans and the Vietnamese and, you know, this very anti-Asian um, kind of rhetoric um, that was used. Um, always the enemy always has to be demonized and the enemy within America's case has always been anybody that is non-white um that that um perseveres even now right it's been so perpetuated within our society um that you it's it's hard to even reconcile right it's hard to even try to imagine a kind of reform because you know say you're a say say you're Islamic or, or Muslim um, whichever term is more appropriate, um, and you join the military, cool, you still have to be concerned about, um, you have to be concerned about your brother in arm or your sister in arms um, hating you because they perceive you to be a threat to America, 100%. right? And so it's like, we think that we're better than this, but these things are basically as American as it is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I will say, you know, this is, you know, back in, I'll say this again, this is my experiences. Someone else's may be different, but what I've experienced, what I've seen is that people who uh, are Muslim or Islamist, if they join the military and they join units, they train with that unit, they stay with that unit, maybe they even deploy that unit um, to a place in the Middle East where we, where we may be uh, fighting people who are also Muslim. I've never seen a, another soldier say that they distrust um, that soldier who is Islamic 
because they are Islamic or because they are of a uh, uh, Middle Eastern background. Never in my life have I ever heard that. Um, are there people out there that might be like that? I really hope not. I really hope not. Um, but in my experiences, I've never seen that. At that point, you are no longer the other, quote unquote. You're one of us. You may look like the other people that we're fighting, but we know that you are with us. So at that point, that kind of differentiates you, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But um, then, then I worry, right, as someone who, who would put on their DOD forms Muslim, uh, I, I worry that they're going to be like, it's okay, it's okay. He's not, he's not like them. He's one of us. He's, he's a good Muslim. You know, the same thing that they do with black people. So a double-edged sword. It's okay. He's one of the good ones. It's okay. He, yes, he prays, but it's fine. He's not like them. And they start asking questions. But do you drink alcohol? No. Do you eat pork? Nah. Do you? Nah. So, so you follow all the laws? Yeah. So why are you not? It's like, just because we quite literally follow all the same base tenets doesn't mean it's the same reason why Methodists say Baptists aren't real Christians, whatever you're quite literally to the outside world, the same exact people like this, you, you have a different flag. That's, that's literally, that's the only thing. One person calls it Vespers. The other person calls it, I don't know, like holy time. Like no one can see the difference unless they live within one of the communities or unless they study comparative religion. Like they, they're, Yet the people who are in there, who are the Imic view, could not reconcile being called the other person. But once you tell them that, they go like, this is different. They're like, how are you saying this is different? You just told me that Methodists and Baptists are worlds apart, yet I say I am this. So are you Sunni or Shia? And it's like, did you just stop studying religion at grade eight? like what what happened you think there you think uh, a faith can exist for a thousand plus years and only have two people two people groups like that and spread across the world and only have two groups like that that's like saying are you are you a lutheran or a catholic and then saying methodists and baptists aren't real people but hey you know that's that's the uh it's the America we live in these days. That's the world we live in these days. But I do, and this is what we absolutely must cover, is Capitol Hill. We're going to have to cover Capitol Hill. We're going to play a nice little seven-second song in between this and the next section. But we're getting there. We're going to talk about rioting, sedition. Uh, Khalid's probably going to say something about capitalists getting uh, getting hanged, hung, and uh, was our president because this will this episode will be released after the president is no longer in office. Thus, you will not be violating the Uniform Code of Military Justice if you address your feelings on the current president, who will no longer be the current president in a few short days. We'll find out what Lieutenant Matthew Waddell says after this break.
and we are back and i'd like to get into um the capital um capitol hill and the incident on january 6th i guess incident is putting it lightly the um failed coup which so like i've had discussions right and i think one of the things like that keeps coming up is trump is a failed would-be dictator right you know he has this authoritarian power and he did he he did he didn't he didn't flip a coup properly i i guess um because you know he commands the military right it would have been very easy to easy to tactically say cool we're in a state of emergency because of the virus declare martial law and um put military forces everywhere and you know basically root out insurrection um not trying to give ideas or anything but like very, very kind of easy things to, to kind of follow through on. Um, but instead, you had a bunch of angry, unplanned white supremacists. And I'm going to say thank God, because, you know, would be real, real different if he was a more competent uh, dictator, right? And I guess that this is the thing. Um, and a thing that I've heard from Bo of the Fifth Column, um, you know, we have to be very aware of these things because, you know, the, we don't want it to happen again. You know, who's to say that the next time we get a would-be dictator in office, they're actually competent, right? So we had this failed coup with these white supremacists that were entirely unorganized. Um, but, you know, this act of domestic terrorism, you also see the very clear disparity um, and American treatment, um, you know, between white people and people of color, right? Um, not even going to justify the coup with, you know, comparisons to protests, but I'm going to look at um, which group was vilified, mm -hmm. right? You know, there's some clear sympathy in this kind of let's reach across the aisle and, Absolutely. you know, really, really unify um, as a bipartisan system. Um, the way that America kind of coddles these white supremacist notions, right? When I say that it is very American to hate the other, um, be that in war, you know, abroad or domestic, mm -hmm. right? Um, it, it's it's evident and it's been evident, but you know, I think for some people, and it's surprising to me that it came as a shock to anybody, mm -hmm. but you know, I think for some people, January 6th kind of marked a very kind of telling bias within America. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. I think for like saying that Donald J. Trump, the 45th president of the United States, is a terrible excuse for what could have been a dictator is apt. I do say that. For the part that, sure, martial law could have been declared using the National Guard, of course, uh, not the full military. He wasn't going to get, I, he wasn't going to scramble F-16s or 22s or anything out there for, they'd just be pointless. They're not dropping ordnance in America uh, for people in their houses. Right. And, and people will often say, but he's a commander in chief, but there's still like commissioned officers have an oath to the constitution 
and Congress grants him a commission. The president doesn't grant them a commission. The president might be the commander in chief, but not unless war is approved by Congress. So we can't just, we have war in, that's why the president only has control of the National Guard and the reserves as a foreign military, um, like officiate. But the National Guard is our thing that works both internationally and nationally. So there are a lot of guardsmen, Air National Guard, um, Army National Guard, but it's like it's it's not a sustainable method to overthrow. Because like you see in other countries where your foreign military is the same as your police military paramilitary organization, so you can use them on both ends. There's a very distinct reason for separating the National Guard, which is uh, statewide national militias from the foreign uh, military excursionary group. And it's for this reason, so that the president can't just command half a million, almost a million people who are uh, active reserve, because that would just be, that would be, well, it wouldn't end well for anyone, for both the people who are in military and the people who are civilians. So I don't know. But since Lieutenant Matthew Waddell is someone who is active duty a commissioned officer, we have the privilege to ask someone what they think. Yeah, so uh, Mr. Miller, you definitely hit the head, on, the head on the nail there uh, when you said that military members and officers in particular, we have an oath to the Constitution, not to the president, not to the Congress either, um, not to the judicial branch, but to the Constitution, period. Our job is to work as an arm of the state, um, normally authorized by the Congress, uh, which is supposed to be our elected representatives of the people. So our job is to work as that arm of the state to accomplish national objectives, whatever that may be, um, national political objectives. So that being said, um, if a uh, person in this country would want to use the military um, to solidify their power, let's put it like that. Um, I think it would be very hard pressed to find many commissioned officers, especially, that would agree with that and would take their units to go accomplish that objective. Speaking of the coup at the Capitol, um, the National Guard was called out for that, if you noticed. And if you noticed, there was not a single one of them that was in the city. And many people were wondering why that was. Well, that's because the National Guard's mission is not law enforcement. Um, this is to the Constitution, it's assisting the people and local governments if needed, the thing that they need. Doesn't quite equate to law enforcement or riot control for that matter. So what you did see during the uh, situation of the Capitol was that a lot of National Guard units went and ran checkpoints on the outskirts of the city um, to help enforce, or um, I guess regulate probably a better word, the curfew that was instated for that night. Um, one really only has to look to history to see what uh, happens whenever uh, certain rulers or uh, political leaders have almost complete control or even complete loyalty of military or just military forces in general, whether that's sanctioned by the state or not. Um, the first one that comes to mind really is Rome and what happened with you know, how many times did um, the soon-to-be or would-be Roman emperor 
march into Rome with their uh, legions that they personally funded, personally paid, you know, personally upkept, not the state, but they themselves, and use that to consolidate their power and become the new emperor of Rome for however long until he got kicked out. That's not something I foresee ever happening, especially not right now, and I doubt ever in my lifetime. Um, really, I hope that that never happens. I don't believe it'll ever happen. Absolutely. I think people have a real attachment, like as you mentioned, Rome, the several iterances of Rome and the Hellenic society, the Pan-Hellenic society, like um, all of the states of Greece, because people love to say the nation, the United States, and they don't really think about what they're saying, like the United States of America, not America, because then we, what are we doing with the, the other three nations who are considered North America, Guatemala, Mexico, the United States of America, and Canada? Some people would say Greenland, but that's, we're, we're not going to discuss that. Um, but like, we can't, we don't, we don't own the entire uh, supercontinent of Americas. And we, we certainly are in infancy, a union of states, which had to be solidified into one um, polis of states in uh, well, obviously, post-Civil War, you can't just say we're a union of states anymore because then you have people who are out here trying to do Confederacy again, return it back to the to, to the good old days, and we all we all know what that means. It wouldn't be good for Khalid and I, but uh, yeah, like so, we are a, for lack of a better term, a federation with each other. So con, like with in Latin, federation states combined in one goal but i i'm hard pressed to say a confederacy because they they, they ruined that term for america they ruined it uh but that is what we are meant to be according to the, the various laws attested to the constitution as the base material for our laws and how our country uh, functions as an international power and all that being said, this is why we have the National Guard. And uh, if you would like, Lieutenant Waddell, you can you can explore that more for us. But laws, states do have their own rights, um, but states do not deserve this notion of states' rights because it's a dog whistle to white supremacists to say states' rights instead of saying. Uh, states have the ability to regulate their own legislation as long as it does not attempt to upend national regulation that upholds the Constitution, which is why we have the superior courts, the, the appellate courts, the Supreme Court, and all of the circuit courts uh, uh, subsidiary to the Supreme Court. But this is not a legalese podcast, and as such, I'm going to stop talking and let someone else take the reins. If it doesn't bother anybody, I, I um, noted that um, Mr. Waddell um, wanted to earlier get into this idea about um, war and um, what that means. And so I'd actually like to steer it in that direction. Okay, so to kind of talk about 
I hope what I was thinking about the philosophy of war, like why do we, um, what is its purpose within society and civilization? So I kind of briefly mentioned it earlier as well. War is of it, in of itself at a very basic level. The whole reason it's even still about is because it is at the end of the day, a tool of the state. Um, it is a way for the state to accomplish political objectives, whatever they, those may be. Whether that's the acquisition of new lands, um, as you mentioned earlier, Mr. Miller, you know, the acquisition of resources, or to deter or completely ensure right, that those that would do us harm do not have the ability to do so anymore. The two main reasons why we conduct war, or use the tool of war, I should say, is fear and interest. Um, interest in, like I mentioned a moment ago, um, potentially acquiring new lands or resources, and fear that if we do not, then potentially someone else can use that tool against us and bring negative consequences to us and our people and jeopardize the safety and the domestic tranquility that we have here in the United States. So what you also see is that with many wars um, throughout history, both that our country has been involved in and countries and empires long and distant past, is that it's more than just meeting the tactical the strategic objectives. And by that, I mean, it's more than just winning battles or winning a series of battles or conquering a certain piece of territory or a certain area, a certain building or whatever. Because if you think, you know, just in recent history about the Vietnam War, we, there was never a battle where we were decisively engaged with the Viet Cong, the Army of the North Vietnamese, anyone. There was not a single battle that the U.S. did not at least come out at least slightly on top. Most time we completely blew out of the ballpark, tactically speaking. But we lost that war. And the reason for that is because we could not accomplish our political objectives. But like, I also think about like this idea, right? It's like the political objective was to deter communism, right? That was, that was the kind of goal there. Um, that was the goal for, you know, war in Korea as well. We wanted to stop communism because that was against American interests. Um, and so like, when I think about like what defines American interest, right? I think about this uh, kind of colonial imperialist um, kind of thought, right? Where it's like, you know, you'd mentioned acquisition and acquisition of land is in and of itself colonization, right? We want to have a stronghold. We want to make sure that our ideals are maintained here. Um, and so like, when I think about um, us in Vietnam or Korea and the sole purpose being to squash the communist threat, the thing that I think about is there was no communist threat. The threat, like, I don't think communism was a direct threat. It was this American and, and American and Western intent to make sure that capitalism was the prevailing thought, right? It was this idea that if people saw communism as a valid alternative, you know, or at least a slightly valid alternative, that you'd lose the kind of ideological grip over American people and this belief that capitalism was the only working system, right? So when you have when you have 
this analysis of our system, people constantly throw out, well, you know, so-and-so is a socialist, so-and-so is a communist. Um, and, you know, most times people can't even define what those terms are, which is amusing to me. But um, American interest is in capitalism because, you know, that's what we were founded upon. Um, seeing an alternative is against American interest, even though it is not inherently a threat to America itself, right? And so we wage these ideological wars that turn into physical wars, which see real loss of life unnecessarily, right? Uh, those people didn't need to die, you know, we didn't need to engage in the way that we did. Martin Luther King actively spoke against um, these, these wars, right? Because it was, it was unjustified. And plus you have problems at home. You know, we had the race problem at home. We had, uh, we had these various inequalities and as opposed to combating that and, you know, actually helping the people here, we were more focused on investing money into wars to keep people from being ideologically different from us. So I think uh, from what I've studied at least, the reason um, was not so much that how do I describe this? It was definitely, you're, you're correct when you assess that it was, uh, was more ideological than it was economic interest for the US. Um, mainly because at the time, I can't remember who, what senator or advisor, I can't remember now, actually, because I need to know it, um, that was coined after. But it was more of a uh, keeping communism from spreading to other countries because these communist countries that might, or countries that might turn communist, let's put it like that actually, um, would most likely ally themselves with people who were our enemies, who also happened to be communist, um, at the time being mainly uh, the nations of China and Russia. And because of that, they were able to gain more power, more resources, financial, more war-making capacity that could potentially be used against us. So, in my studies of it, it's more of a, it was more of a way to keep um, not so much waging a war against um, that nation in particular they were at, more of like a, almost the idea of a proxy war, almost, um, to fight against another nation somewhere else against different people, but because those other two nations could use that place and that people to their advantage against us. So uh, Mr. Miller, you mentioned the, uh, Isolate and contain, yes. So that was exactly this exactly what I was just saying there. Um, keeping those countries from potentially aiding our enemies anyway by isolating them and containing the spread of what we call the spread of communism from reaching those countries. Yeah, I can I can remember reading and listening to podcasts with Jeffrey Sachs, who is an economist and an all-around cool person. He worked with Poland. Uh, whenever Poland was reforming, we, we know about uh, Poland was basically under the the power of uh, the USSR at the time. So in like the 70s and 80s, Poland, in fact, had a very massive near coup d'etat in 1983. Uh, it was like a, a military state and CCTV everywhere. It was basically 1984. And the irony is that it happened 
one year before the the book's title of 1984. But Poland itself was uh, thinking of becoming a socialist state. They're like, oh, we can help everyone. We have health care. Um, we can do all these things. And then, you know, whenever they had the advisors, they were like, hey, so you can't do this because USSR will invade you if you become socialist. They're going to use it to justify themselves. They're going to be like, oh, they're socialists. They might as well just go the next step, become a communist. We'll take them. We'll help them out. So like, so you got to become at least somewhat capitalist. It might not be the best thing for your people, but so Western Europe and America will protect you from invasion. So like, so we have two choices. We can either do what's best for our people, maybe not our economy at first and get invaded, or we can do what may not be the best move and uh, do so so that we can at least protect ourselves from an outside force, even though we're letting in an outside force because we need trading partners and our economy will collapse if we don't become capitalists. Damned if we do, damned if we don't. That's the problem though, right? America has this incredibly bloated military force, right? Nobody can... Re you know, if America chooses to go to war with uh, some country, you know, it's like you're pretty much you're pretty much damned anyway, right? You don't really have the ability to fight back, which is why you know America being unable to uh, decisively win in Vietnam or uh, Korea is really um, interesting, you know. But like this idea that America has, I guess I'm losing my train of thought here. One second. I just think I just think it's really interesting, right? We feel so threatened by any group being ideologically different, like any country having different ideological practices. And America's waged war for less, right? You know, once again, looking at Iraq, this this false threat of WMDs when you know the general consensus is we were over there for oil anyway, right? So it's not like we were really waging the war for anything substantial other than resource acquisition right absolutely but my thing is it's not during the bush administration we had these massive reservoirs underground filled with oil as well as some filled with other gases but we have massive reservoirs filled with oil and our reason for justifying foreign conflict in order to obtain more barrels of oil is that we need to maintain our primary source, which is foreign acquisition. And if for some reason it doesn't work out, then we could start using our underground oil reserves. But this is just in case we can't get over there. So they were like imagining what if like a foreign body like just takes over all of our foreign oil exchange, then we can start using this so we could survive for the next 10 years until we find another way. I say, how about we just find a way to make foreign oil inaccessible to the US, like, like change its chemical makeup. This is not a possibility, but change its chemical makeup and rearrange the types of systems that can use it in the foreign nation, but don't share this technology with the West so that the oil or the natural resources quite literally unusable to the occupying force. So they'll have no choice but to use the 
oil reserves, which we've been reducing uh, substantially and consistently since 2001, so that we have no choice but to move towards greener energy sources. Of course, that won't happen. I still don't understand. I, I understand how we do, because if we say, ah, oh, we've had these underground oil reserves the whole time, we just keep foreign wars because it's the easiest thing because our military industrial complex already enables us to do it. So why change a system if it's not broken for the people who are benefiting from it? Because that is the American way. I'd love to imagine an alternative, you know, but heck, even clean energy is outside of capitalist interest. Why? Because it's more expensive to invest in, right? Even if it's more sustainable, the quick dollar is what the capitalist is about, you know, quick dollars, they can stack it and keep stacking their wealth. So be like that. It, it does indeed. Um, as the kids say, it does indeed. But yeah, yeah, we, we've talked about this before. Like imagine a world in which a genetically modified plant could feed everyone and everything and a billionaire came up with it. They would find a way to filibuster that billionaire out of existence, probably have him killed Bill Gates, even though they created something that would help the world. And then you'd have uh, people even on the left to say, we can't trust in billionaires uh build themselves on the backs of others and it's like cool cool they've done bad things however this thing that they have brought to us will save the world now we don't want it because they're bad people and it's like sure they're bad people we can handle them after we save the world why do that's that's my issue with a lot of people on the left we want all the wins at once to the extreme to where we'll take an l because we couldn't get the entire w we won't take a lowercase w we, we want the full one or we'll, we'll just lose. We'll, we'll, we'll just say, fuck it. My philosophy is, is this, right? So for example, not entirely related, but you know, you look at white supremacists and mm -hmm. you know, my philosophy is it's a white people problem. That's for them to deal with. You know, we can, and if, you know, I'll engage as I, as I need to, but that's for them to deal with. Um, when you look at the companies in America that, you know, produce all of these emissions and all of this, uh, this, all of this toxicity to the earth. No, they have, they have to fix it. And, you know, we can have a conversation about that, you know, about what happens to them afterwards for, for their, uh, for their misdeeds, but you know, no, no, they, they have to deal with it. Um, and there's this like real tactic um, that is used by these corporations where it's like, yeah, no, you, the middle to lower class individual, need to, you know, be more responsible for how you're impacting the environment. And sure, you know, you have an eco footprint, but I guarantee you that your, uh, that your eco footprint is nowhere near the size of these big corporations. And I'm, if I'm not mistaken, isn't America responsible for like the biggest um, emissions uh, productions in the world? So it's like, you know, you're putting that on the backs of uh, the average middle-class worker when Indeed. that responsibility lies on the billionaires that are running these mega corporations. But the issue is they're not going to fix it. And so, you know, yep. you have to keep pressuring them to fix it. And, you know, and look at Amazon and, you know, Jeff Bezos. Uh, it, it will hey, be hey, hey. Jeff Bezos. Um, well, what I'll say is Jeff Bezos in and of himself not a terrible person, but that's because I'm saying he's not doing malicious things. 
I'm going to say he's also not even close to a good person because he's not doing anything with that money. At least Bill Gates, once he stepped on the backs of others, decided to use the money that he accrued to save lives. But like to, to, to the point of Amazon, right? Amazon is like, yeah, no, we plan to have zero emissions by, what did they say, 2035? Something That's something. a long time. It's a long time. It is a very long time. However, they, they could do, I'm not going to lie to you, they could do it right now. I've seen I've seen the inside of their facility. They could do it right now. They they could they could definitely cut it down. They could make half the country green. But you know they want they want to face they they want to slowly face it out. But nevertheless, there is I'm not gonna call it a commitment because it's a very lax commitment. But you know there is some level of uh, consciousness about about the problem. Their response is to work slowly towards fixing it. But you know whatever. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so malicious how these corporations put the responsibility on the average American citizen. Like, yes, obviously, do your part as an individual, but you got to take these corporations to task. You know, we got to, as Americans, uh, my country right or wrong, we have to take the things that are wrong in America to task. So, you know, I think about uh, social systems, why the heck does um, the military have such a huge budget? And once again, we can't even have universal health care. Housing is still an issue. You know, we're building $400,000 to a million dollar apartments in Atlanta, you know, right off of Ponce. And you can drive past the, the bridge near Georgia State and see a community of homeless people. I just want know? affordable housing, man. That's that's really all we need. That's that's yo, if I could find man, so I can find a place in Athens for like 425, right? 425 for a one bedroom. That's as cheap as you're getting. 425 for some people be like, that's not bad at all. Tell me why if I go to Athens and I search house, I can find a three bedroom for 825. That, that don't make no sense. I could buy a whole house or rent a whole house with three bedrooms for less than twice the amount it costs for a one bedroom apartment. And that's only one apartment. You look at any other apartment, 500, 550, 600. I look for a two bedroom house. Two bedroom house costs $545. I found six of them that were sub 550. I could only find four one bedroom apartments that were cheaper than a two bedroom house that's just not okay and why is that because you got apartments they know they're going to increase their pricing despite the lease commitments and they're like ah we got to make them sign a lease we're going to make them pay higher because it's probably the people who can only afford 450 that are probably going to leave because they can't afford it because they lose their seasonal job or whatever but with the house i'm making you sign a one-year lease and i'm holding you to it otherwise you're getting sued so I'm gonna make it as cheap as possible. But hey, the, the world is, I don't even know. But, you know, with all this hard hitting stuff, uh, we're gonna let uh, Lieutenant Waddell continue to speak with us. And right now, so that everyone feels a warm feeling coming through them, um, but not like Christian music, but something, we're gonna, we're gonna leave a little bit of a music break right now. Well, folks, that's the end of that episode. 
If you would like to hear more from Lieutenant Matthew Adele, head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash IDO, I-D-O-H, to hear the rest on In Defense of Time. See you guys next time.